I'm Hannes Roth. I'm here with my co-host Katharina Lauer and this is Data for Life. Hey Hannes, great to speak to you again and I am delighted to be back with our next interview with Abel Oreta Vidal. Hey Kathy, it's so great to be with you today. This is the third episode, can you believe this? Today is going to be a very juicy bit, I guess. I'm very much looking forward to meeting Abel. Yeah, thank you for having me. He is a serial entrepreneur, he's been in the finance business, but he's also been a researcher and a scientist, so he really knows his way around, also around Europe and the globe, I guess. So I'm very much going to look forward to what's going to happen today. I'd like to introduce myself when I do a retrospective of my career as a Spanish-born, French-educated and British-inspired entrepreneur. That gives a very short overview about my last 25 years. And I'm a biologist by training. I did a PhD in Pasteur Institute, Immunovirology and Molecular Biology. Finished that in 1999, so it's over 20 years now. Then uh, I was a bit the geek in the lab, so I was in charge of the computers, the kind of data analysis kind of thing that uh, were happening at the time. And I didn't want to do any more wet lab work, so I moved into uh, the world of genomics. And I was very fortunate to join the Human Genome Project in the French side. And I joined the Genoscope, south of Paris, uh, that had in charge at the time to sequence chromosome 14 of the human genome. And I was put in charge of scaling up all the data analysis to do gene prediction on the DNA sequence of chromosome 14. So I worked there for about a couple of years. And for a Frenchman, it was a dream job because it was in an academic institution. The job was for life, but I couldn't see any clear career path for evolving. To be honest, it was too many French people with French people. I love them, but I wanted a bit more international exposure. And decided to leave in 2001, I leave France to, uh, to come to the UK. And I joined the European Bioinformatics Institute in 2001. Uh, I joined a very interesting project called the Ensemble Project, funded by the Wellcome Trust. And that was at the time where the academic side of the Human Genome Project was fighting to make sure that the private industry, uh, Celera at the time, was trying to kind of uh, uh, make a hold up on the human genome and, and the annotations. And uh, the Wellcome Trust uh, didn't want that to happen, so they funded a project called Ensemble, as I mentioned, that was going to make sure the human genome and all the annotation was going to be freely available, both for academia and industry. And uh, I joined this project uh, at the very beginning, in 2001, uh, and the, the lead of this project uh, was Ivan Bernie at the time, who is now the director of the, the European Bioinformatics Institute. And I was put in charge of the, what's called the compatible genomics aspect of the project. Uh, once the human genome was sequenced, then the mouse came, rats, and all the other species afterwards, fish, birds. My role was basically to analyze and compare those genomes to find what gene in human corresponds to what gene in mouse, in rat and fish, for example. Worked there for about uh, six years, built a small team, about five, six people, and decided to leave the EBI, again, because I was feeling a bit too comfortable there. EBI has a rule of nine years, so if I stay another three to finish my nine years, I'll be a bit wasted. So I took myself out uh, a bit out of my comfort zone. Uh, I wanted to always go to industry and decided to take a year off to do a business study. So I did the MBA at the Judge Business School uh, here in Cambridge. So uh, I didn't kind of uh, move countries again. And while I was doing the MBA, I was exposed to the entrepreneurial path and all you know entrepreneurship activities around Cambridge and, and the school. 
and started Eagle Genomics in May 2008 with Will Spooner, who was the other founder of the company. Took us on a journey of about 12 years, uh, moving from bioinformatic, uh, you know, uh, consultancy uh, into uh, uh, developing an enterprise software platform for data and knowledge management in, in life sciences R&D. I exited the company in April this year, only to join very you know, quickly afterwards an investment fund. So now I'm working for CMS Ventures. Is China Medical System Ventures is an investment arm of this pharma company from Hong Kong that wants to invest in UK life sciences in the UK. So yes, I have all those hats about starting with science, uh, then genomics, then uh, entrepreneurship and uh, starting a company, and now into the investment. And I'm involved with other startups and, and one of them also as a co-founder at the moment. So Abel, you were on the science track, you were spearheading genomics at Ensemble, and then you switched into entrepreneurship. Why? Did you, did you get bored in academia? I don't think I was bored. I, was, I think it was a crave that I had since my education in academia in France. In France, there is, at least in my time, there was a dichotomy between the university path that usually get people into academic career paths. And if you wanted to go into more industrial paths, you go to what's called the School of Engineers. That is a very completely different outside of, uh, of university. I didn't know anything about that because I'm, I was coming from a working class environment. And uh, if you don't know what exists, you, you don't look for it, basically. And I, I was always frustrated not to be able to be to jump from my academic background and education into industry. So I tried in France before leaving to the UK to join a pharma company in France, but I didn't have the network, the business acumen to make a credible candidate. And so uh, when I came to the UK and in Cambridge in particular, it took me five, six years in Cambridge to have my mindset slowly changing. Uh, I get to deformatting or de-learning what I've learned in, in my French education and being exposed to the Cambridge ecosystem of startups and commercialization of technology. And uh, and I could have started, say, I leave DBI, I start my company on my own, but I didn't have the confidence because I didn't know anything about business. So I was still very academic. And so the only way to learn from me is to learn from teachers. Okay, So I say, well, let's go to an MBA and have teachers telling me about sales, about marketing, about corporate finance, about accounting, about uh, innovation, about management. And the MBA for me was eye-opening. That's what gave me the confidence to start Eagle Genomics. At the same time as being able to have a founder with me, Richard Holland joined us a few months later as well. So we were three, actually. I don't think I would have started on my own. That was the journey. It was a personal journey into uh, what to do and where to be to be able to do something more applied than fundamental research. So did you realize the business potential of open databases such as Ensemble that have open data and open source code while you were working there? Or did it only hit you during your MBA? No, I knew about that before leaving to my MBA. I mean, Ensemble is an open source software and open data platform and is used by academics but is also used at the time, and I think now as well, by industry. And at the time, we had a lot of requests from pharma companies, biotech companies that were downloading the platform and having the internal installation. And we had to provide the support and training to the people in those companies. And what happened when we started Eagle Genomics, I had done and will as well a bit of a freelance consultancy, selling our expertise about how to deploy the Ensemble platform and how to understand how the data was structured and how to access it to a pharma company in the US. But that was freelance. And we did that while I was studying the MBA. The company liked what I did and they started to realize that they were investing internally on this platform for the long term. 
and, and they needed this kind of support. They couldn't rely on just freelance consultants. Freelance consultants, uh, is they're here today and they, they, they might be gone tomorrow. And they wanted the, the security that we will be there for six months, a year, two years. And that's what prompted uh, Will and I to say, well, maybe there is a case to build a company that reassures our customer that we are there for the long run. So you started consultancy with Eagle Genomics, and it seems that science infrastructures played a huge role for you. What was your relationship to Ensemble and the EBI? A very good what I've learned, because it was open source, Eagle Genomics reused a lot of material that was there. But at the same time, the platform was evolving and we were not inside system anymore. So we had to get information secondhand. And to be able to have first-hand information planning roadmap, we had a discussion with EBI and also the Wellcome Trust. You have to remember that Sanger was a joint project between the EBI and the Sanger Institute. And we agreed a partnership where we could have access to times of some of the developers and ensemble on specific issues and also access to some of the material for training that we could uh, reuse, make it commercial. And, uh, and we did something very formal that worked out very well at the beginning of Eagle Genomics. Okay, but this is one of the most interesting aspects of Eagle Genomics. You just said that you commercialized the open source development and open data from Ensemble. At the same time, you said that you have begun with pharmaceutical companies in this, in this project. But when I look at Eagle Genomics now, what I see is a company that is very, very active outside of pharmaceutical industry. Well, yes, I know. I mean, this, this is what makes PR. So, uh, you know, the 100,000 genomes and, uh, and the rare disease and cancer, this is what makes the headlines. But, but DNA and genomics is used in all the field of life sciences. We started working with Unilever and they were doing genomics, but the microbiome level. But they were not interested on the human genome. Their interest was to look at what is the impact of the toothpaste, the shampoo, the creams they do on the microbiome. And at the time, there was research about understanding what is the not only the bad impact of microbiome, but also the good impact of microbiome. And now it's pretty well known that there are good bacteria, good fungi, and bad bacteria, bad fungi. And we don't live in a sterile environment. We're not in a bubble. Um, and we have a microbiome all over our body and it's also regulating the immune system or metabolic system in good or bad ways. And so they were looking at the impact of their products in toothpaste. did a lot of uh, you know, helping them scale up the genomic data analysis of the microbiome in the mouth for the mouthwash development for the toothpaste. And one product that came out of that is Zendium, where the toothpaste has been developed to make sure that you keep healthy microbiome ecosystem in your mouth. And that's interesting because when you think about it, you brush your teeth or you take a mouthwash is to kill 99.9% of your microbiome in the mouth. Actually, you don't want to kill that much. You want to keep some of the good ones in there. And that's where we started getting into the personal care industry. And very then quickly, it's not that far to go into the food industry and the agri-tech as well. So from your point of view, helping research on shampoo or helping research on drug discovery is somehow related because you still use the same methods, the same tools, the same data. Exactly. We did entry into the agri-tech, into plants. Going back to the Ensemble platform that we use a lot at the very beginning, and we're still using it today, but it's less a core product, actually, it's not anymore. It's more kind of one data resource and one data platform we use amongst many others. If you had deployed uh, the Ensemble version for the human genome and for mouse or rat or pharma department, but you were now working with plant breeding or plant seed company, the human genome for that was not of interest. They were more interested in corn with uh, broccoli, for example. 
I am intrigued to find out from you what role open databases play for companies in the life science sector. Um, let's say you want to move into a new sector or pivot your company, test a hypothesis, or just quickly want to see if one of your products works in a different setting. Yes, so you basically redo your research and gather the information that is accessible to anyone for the specific area of research you are working on. So as I said, you know, if you're working on uh, human cancer, you're very likely to work on the human genome and, and some of the human genes. Now, if you are working on improving the breeding and selection to getting the best broccoli, the human genome is not going to help you. But if you have broccoli genome in the ensemble platform, the concept of a gene is not different from a human to a bacteria to a plant. Uh, the platform enables you to uh, create the genes that are specific for broccoli and the, the genes that are specific for uh, human. Uh, so what we had to know was the Ensemble platform, the software, the data modeling, that's fine. So and, and you can transfer one to the other species. The difficulty was this biological aspect if you are working on human health, translating your knowledge on human health and now going into a broccoli trait or broccoli disease is quite a gem. So you have to rebuild your expertise in that field. And the same thing when we move from human genome into macrobiome, you don't analyze macrobiome sequencing the same way you analyze the human genome. And again, you have to adapt and gather further expertise. The issue with that is having in a single company, the knowledge of biology for all those different organisms in the same company is very hard. So I think uh, you have to find a bit of focus and decide which one you want to pursue first and get some depth. But obviously, when you change biological fields, yes, the first thing is go out there and see what's available to the public domain. EBI, Elixir, obviously, NCBI, any kind of databases that are around the world that could help you build your knowledge base of information that you will use as your baseline. If you work with customers, that will basically be generating their own research on data and, and what you want to be able to help them with. Are you discovering something new or are you just discovering something that was already there in the open domain? And that's always the baseline. So Eagle Genomics does not create data. You collect all this data from these all these different sources and then you enable a manager to work on this baseline to do their R&D. Yeah, so there's two things. One is gathering data from the open domain. That's obvious. Either because it's free or if it's licensed, it's basically uh, buying the license to incorporate that in the same framework. But then allowing the company or the customers to overlay their own data over that baseline. And the important things here, when, when you know experiments in science, I've simplified that in a way that the outcome of a good experiment is to be able to make connection between different concepts. I'm looking at, is there a new uh, SNP that is associated with a disease, for example, and you're making a connection between those two things. Now, if you have done this connection because of this study, you want to know if that connection has been done before, okay, or if it's a new one. And that's the premise of the system is we are laying down the knowledge base line for a specific field that has all those connections and relationships that have been gathered through analysis of um, publications or from databases, for example. And we overlay the new connections that have been done by every experiment that run day in and day out in those companies and try to pinpoint to them what are the new connections they are making through the experiments. You know, if they are making connections that are already there, they're not getting anything new, right? It's probably wasting their time and they're wasting the money. So they want to make sure that they can identify very quickly, have I found a new correlation, a new association, a new causal link that nobody has before, and what does it mean in terms of my own product development? Because then it gives me a competitive hedge that I want to exploit. 
So Abel, if you don't mind, I would actually like to move a little bit away from talking about data and the technical aspects and focus on location. So you've started your first company in Cambridge many years ago and well then you've expanded your reach to France and the US and now you're a co-founder of Sophie which is based in London. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the choice of location? So when we started, we were all in Cambridge because we started it with Ensemble and Genomics. Cambridge is a bit the mecca of genomics, frankly. So with DBI and Sanger, there was no need to go beyond that. Um, we extended move to London because of investors. So some of the additional people we brought in that were living in London and uh, also to capture more talent over there. For example, in terms of software engineering, where we moved into developing a software platform, you can find great genomicists and bioinformaticians in Cambridge. All the very, very good software engineers, software architects, UX, UI, they are not in Cambridge. There are some, but there are very few of them. So they are most, in, most of them are in London. But even with that, we didn't have enough developers and uh, we expanded also in Hyderabad um, in 2018. So we have a software development base in Hyderabad there. And France, we went there. Two reasons. One, personal connections. I come from Paris. And since about five years, and it's been accelerated with Macron coming into power, uh, is the, the entrepreneurship or startup uh, mindset in France has been accelerating quite a lot. There's been an inflation of accelerators, incubators in all over France, but in Paris in particular. One was Station F. That was one reason for me to reconnect. Uh, the second thing is we had customers in France and in life sciences, like in Germany, but in France, there is a lot of customers in, in pharma, in diagnostic, in food and in personal care. It was obvious to get closer to uh, our customers in France. And the same thing for the US. So uh, we have a base in New York and we did that through Johnson & Johnson. So we're in there in the J-Lab in New York. And again, because the US is, is a big market for us because of the customers that are over there. Cargill is is in the US, for example, and uh, when we started Eagle uh, very early on, the first customer was Eli Lidi in Indianapolis. And because we are global, so at some stage you need to, uh, even though we are working remotely <laughs> nowadays, uh, still the customers are, are in specific uh, geographical location. And to, to come to Sophie, the, the latest company I joined as co-founder, the founder, Kave uh, Memari, is uh, a great team builder and is built a team uh, global from the onset. So we have people in the UK, but also in Russia, so in the US, and actually one of the co-founders at Duke University. And, uh, and we have um, other collaborators in the scientific advisory board as well in the US. The fact that everything is done through Zoom now doesn't matter much. So people have adapted and makes the whole company global from, from day one. And I think any company that starts should shooting globally from the beginning and, and not think they should have uh, just a team in one geographical location. I still like to go to the office. I think um, Zoom cannot replace human interaction. There needs to be some nucleus somewhere where people can meet face to face and travel hopefully will resume as well. Speaking about transitions, you now became the founder of Sophie, a company that brings science to plant-based medicines for consumers. So again, it's personal care. Have you now fallen in love with personal care? No, it was, it, it was purely opportunistic. I met the founder, Kave, about uh, over a year ago. Uh, I was on a panel discussion at the Francis Creek Institute, so he came to see me uh, at the end of the meeting and we started interacting about another business at the beginning. It was uh, a business around the 
cardiac rehab done remotely. Uh, so that was even before the COVID. And uh, very quickly, he talked to me about uh, this other opportunity to work in helping people with chronic diseases, mostly around chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, that don't have any pharma drug that works efficiently. For chronic pain, people are using paracetamol, ibuprofen, and we all know that uh, long-term use of those drugs have very bad side effects. Okay, so what people are doing in mass is turning to alternative uh, medicine and things around plants. And I don't know here in the chemist, but you know, if you go to Holland Barrett, that's where people go to, uh, in Holland Barrett in the UK. You go to those shops to buy all kind of things that have plants goodness in it. And uh, obviously the, the most famous at the moment is CBD, cannabinoid kind of things, oil, that's CBD everywhere. Okay, and so far, the only thing we can say about cannabinoid is that uh, it doesn't do any harm. Does it do any good? We don't know. People try things and uh, how much is placebo, how much is real uh, effect, we don't know. And the premise was to start and helping those kind of, we call them wellness seekers, um, uh, navigate this big market of so many fragmented brands and different qualities and having for them the ability to, uh, when they ingest those uh, supplements, be able to do that digitally and, uh, and be able to measure the effect on the personal level. So I only joined this project because uh, I wanted not to sell snake oil, but to be able to uh, differentiate and help patients differentiate what works for them personally and what doesn't. So the idea is to uh, put on the market what we call a smart digital spray, where you can change different capsules with different formulas of uh, different uh, plant extracts known for their benefits and be able to capture timely ingestion and also the feedback from uh, those patients about uh, the effect of that formula on their pain, on their anxiety. And so there's a big challenge there in terms of data acquisition, data capture, uh, and also uh, statistics. So this is about how can you develop a, a clinical trial assuming that you can only have one patient to, uh, to analyze the data. And that's basically around time series and also huge engagement from the patient side. And those patients are fully engaged because chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, uh, it's something they have to live with every day, every night. And they are looking for things, not to cure them specifically, but to help them improve the quality of life. That must be so exciting after years of managing a product in a growing company. Now you're going back to zero as an entrepreneur. Yes, for, for my sins. Yes, for my sins. Um, you know, the last few years I've been doing a lot of mentoring, coaching as well in other startups. Um, I'll be looking at the non-exec positions and chairman positions as well. So that's something that doesn't take me full time, but that I feel uh, I can add value. And again, uh, selecting the right companies uh, because I want to work with people I respect and enjoy working with. So I have the luxury of the choice now. So I'm just uh, enjoying this middle life crisis. And lucky for us, you enjoy it with all the others. So you share your fortune, you share your success with startups as a mentor. You're a mentor at Judge Business School as well. And um, for a couple of years, you're now also representative of the Industry Advisory Committee at Elixir. So you work now actively on the brink between science and industry. Can you maybe tell me a little bit about this role? I joined the, um, is the Industry Advisory Committee, so about third year now. So uh, I started as vice chair, now I'm at the chair. 
So it's very arm length kind of uh, role. So, um, but uh, it gets uh, me and, and the other members of the group to understand a bit what Elixir is doing at the European level. I remember kind of Elixir is, is a pan-European organization. The, obviously, it's on the same site. Uh, at least the directorate is on the same site uh, as the EBI on the campus. So I was very close, so just next door because uh, Eagle Genomics is on the campus. But it helped me understand about uh, what's happening in uh, all the different countries in Europe, in different fields. My role there was to bring the SME perspective to some extent and reassure Alexi and um, that what they're doing is super important. And I think uh, Europe, by uh, investing in uh, that framework, I think is doing the right thing. Because, uh, you know, let's imagine all the resources that are freely available disappear from today to tomorrow. It'd be very, very hard for life sciences company to do the work. Really, really hard or they will have to take a big part of their R&D to, to support that. I'm bringing my SME expertise. Uh, there are other members of the, the committee that come from uh, large companies, people from Bayer, from AstraZeneca, or it's not just uh, SMEs, it's industry in general. For Eagle, there was a benefit because I could come back and say, well, there are this, these people are doing this thing and this thing, and you know, maybe want to have a look and, and can be involved. So that's kind of... Uh, the way to reassure that uh, people at Elixir are going in the right direction to uh, fill some of industry needs. Elixir has to also fulfill academic needs, but anything that's done there has a big impact for industry as well. On the one hand, open data is great because you don't have to create it yourself. It's fairly inexpensive. But on the other hand, are there things you would have rather avoided when using open data? What could have made your life easier? Is there a wish list for open data? No, I think um, there's still a huge effort around the curation of data. Even so, you say, oh, yeah, it's great to have open data because it's free and uh, we can go there. It depends on how the data is organized. And it's not because it's free and available that is ready to be digested and used. And there's still some quite effort to integrate those data sets for a specific purpose. And that's the role of the SME or industry. If they want to use that, they have to put the effort and you get back as much as you give, right? The thing is, SMEs have to have their own differentiator, their own product, their own IP. And if they have something valuable, they have to do their own work, right? We cannot expect academia to do everything. And really, there is a need that is not fulfilled by academia, then maybe there is a commercial need that can, product that can be fulfilling that need. And if that's true, then you should be able to sell it or get some value out of it. If not, it's just you who needs it and nobody else. So why would academia invest in putting that just for you? And on top of that, academia, academic institutions have their own research project and their own interests. So they're building stuff for themselves as well for fulfilling the grants and the publications. That's uh, the main remit they have. So there's more and more public-private uh, partnerships. The IMI is, is one example, and there are others. And academia is trying to find its way about how to provide open access to academia and maybe uh, getting some money back from industry. They're still finding out what is the best business model for that. And um, either you put full payment for private access or you give everything for free. Uh, one I like that seems to be working is the, the COSMID database at the Sanger. Uh, where they managed to do this kind of dual licensing where if it's of academic research uh, is free if it's for private companies usually pharma then there is payment of a licensing and that is used to pay PhDs postdoc to improve further the database that's another way to make things work and influence what an academic group is doing for the benefit of industry so industry needs to put a bit their the hand in the pocket to give some funding so Abel, we've talked about your experience as an academic researcher and as an entrepreneur. And now I would also like to hear from Abel, the investor. 
As previously mentioned, you have been working as an investment director at CMS Ventures for about six months now. Is there a big difference in funding bioinformatics and life science ventures in comparison to other sectors? I don't think there is a big difference. I think if you are starting a company, you need to have a service or product that people want to buy because they need it. So in that sense, there is no difference. Maybe only difference, uh, maybe the level of money you need to get started. If you are purely in software and data, if you're not generating the data yourself, the amount of money you need is probably much smaller than if you are trying to develop a therapeutics. Plus, you have all the tools around you. Everybody has a laptop, can code, software are accessible to uh, languages to code are accessible everywhere. Accessing uh, compute and storage is not that expensive with AWS, Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud. There is no, I don't think there is any limit to creativity in that uh, digital field, frankly. Now, uh, to be able to build up then a real product and scale that up, yes, you need money. But it's not different from any other company, I would think. It's just about how do you differentiate yourself from an open source software if there is an open source competitor, or how do you add value if you are developing a new data set or a new software, and who are going to be the customers that want to buy it, which is the 101 of any business creation anyway. So no, I don't think that there's any difference there. So as promised at the very beginning, that was an exciting interview. Thank you so much, Abel, for joining us today. It has been a blast. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Data for Life podcast. And if you like our content, then follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter at Alexi Europe or Captain Future. <laughs>